Planning on traveling this summer? Make saving at the pump part of your plans with two times the fuel points from Harris Teeter. It's easy. Download your eVic coupon, and for every dollar you spend with your Vic card, you'll get two fuel points. That's up to one dollar per gallon on quality fuel at participating BP and Harris Teeter fuel centers. Download your eVic coupon today and save money at the pump all summer long with eVic and Harris Teeter fuel points. Attention shoppers, we now have taste in the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread. That's right, an organic bread that's no longer a sedative for your taste buds. Dave's Killer Bread is on a mission to make the most of the loaf, to rid the world of GMOs, high fructose corn syrup, and artificial ingredients, and plant the seeds of good in all that they bake. Killer taste, killer texture, and always organic. Dave's Killer Bread. Bread Amplified. Welcome to the Unscripted Podcast. My name is Corby LaCroix, and the song you're hearing right now is called Great and Mighty One, available on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your music. But for now, here's your host and my friend, Aaron Conrad. Great Redeemer, God of grace. All right, everybody, welcome back to Unscripted. From my studios in Old Hilliard, and uh, really exciting today to have a guest uh, to have a uh, conversation about something that uh, I actually received an email while I was on vacation. So we're you're the first guest back since I've been on vacation. So well, <laughs> so it, we're we're back in the saddle again. But uh, I received this email while I was on vacation, and I could not wait to talk to you. So my guest today, let me go ahead and turn it over to you. Let you introduce yourself, and we'll go from there. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. Being the first guest after your vacation, I hope uh, I hope I can make it interesting for you. So uh, my name is Stephen Collis. I'm a writer. I write uh, both fiction and nonfiction. I'm also a law professor at the University of Texas, specializing in First Amendment law. And uh, I, I love just at heart, I'm a storyteller. I've always wanted to be a storyteller and a novelist. And so uh, I've been uh, writing and publishing books for a while now and uh, just thrilled to be on with you to talk about them. Well, thank you, because I feel completely outclassed in terms of your your knowledge and your resume. But uh, we're on today to talk about praying with the enemy. Um, that's so when I as I read the email about uh, what this book is about, I was blown away by uh, because I think it's so important in where we are in the world today um, with you know so many different things. So why don't we just start off there? Uh, first of all, let's start with your story. Um, you've already, you know, kind of told what you are in terms of titles, but let's just start with your story. Who are you? So the audience, as they're listening, knows a little bit more about you. Yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, like I said, a writer and a law professor. I also am a, a father and, and husband. I've got five kids. We live in the Austin, Texas area. I'm at the University of Texas. And uh, if I'm not uh, teaching or writing about law, I'm I'm writing or, or working on books or spending time with my family. I think that probably sums me up pretty well, generally. So you wrote this book, uh, "Praying with the Enemy." Um, what? First of all, where did this all start? So I lived in Korea for two years a long time ago, and when I got back, I wanted to do uh, some kind of a project on Korea, write a book about Korea, and I was in the basement of a university library doing some research for a different project. And I found this out-of-print memoir 
about an American fighter pilot that had been shot down behind enemy lines in the Korean War, snapped both his ankles, got captured, survived, escaped, got recaptured, and then with a North Korean soldier managed this miraculous escape. And he had written this book after he had returned to the United States. And, you know, it was out of print, old and dusty. No one knew about the story. And I just thought to myself, one day I'm going to bring this story back to life. So it started 20 years ago. And I finally reached a point in my career where I could, I had a publisher that wanted to go forward with it and I was excited to go forward with it. And that's how we started moving forward. So is the book, um, is the book fiction or is it nonfiction? It is, uh, mostly nonfiction. It's fictionalized to the extent that I, I I made it a, a, a historical fiction based on the true story, but many of the facts in there are, are absolutely true. And in fact, one thing I put in my author's note at the end is probably the, the facts that seem the most unbelievable are the ones that are most likely true. Uh, where mm. I fictionalized it is I, I tried to work with pacing. I wanted it to be fast paced. I wanted to include a bit more dialogue than I otherwise had available to me. And then there were a few people that I, 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 created one character that represented a few people uh, instead of kind of having these different folks. And I just did that kind of for narrative pace. But but by and large, by and large the story is true and, and tracks the real story of these two men, this North Korean soldier and this American fighter pilot. See, <clears throat> excuse me, he found this memoir. You write this book. Um, what What is the biggest, what was the thing that captured you when you found the memoir? Like what, what, what made you want to pursue this project? I just found the story just unbelievable. And and a detail I left out is the North Koreans, after this a fighter, fighter pilot, his name's Ward Millar, after he escaped and he's hobbling across the countryside with two broken ankles, um, the order had gone out that he was to be executed on site. So when he gets captured, you know, he figures this is it, it's over. Right. But but the North Korean soldier who captured him was a closeted Christian. And most people don't know this, but there were some Christians up in, in, in Korea at the time, and especially in, in what is now North Korea. And the communists had essentially taken the position that any religious group needed to be needed to be basically crushed because religious groups represented a threat to the new communist regime because people would be loyal to the religious group as opposed to loyal to the new government. So he had to basically go into hiding and, and be closeted in his religion. Then he was forced into the North Korean army. And then when he captures this American, he's got orders to execute him. But Ward Millar had crafted a, a tiny little cross out of two sticks. Ward was not very, wasn't sure if he was Christian or not, but his, his, his wife was a very devout Catholic. And so he was, he was clinging to her faith really. And he had, he had fashioned this little cross and uh, the Korean man saw that cross and suddenly realized he might he might have a friend. And in his mind, because he had been forced into the North Korean army, what went through his head immediately was perhaps they could work together. So the chances of these two men finding each other the way they did just really captured my imagination. And then, the, you know, it's it's exciting. It's got survival. It's got, you know, trying to survive behind enemy lines, escape under fire. I mean, all the things you'd want in a great story plus this kind of miraculous aspect of how these two men found each other. Are these two men still alive? 
Fino. So they they both died in the 1990s of just you know natural causes, but their widows are both still alive and in their late 90s. Ward Millar's uh, wife just turned 97, and Kim J. Peel's wife is is in her mid 90s as well in Korea. And I'll tell you, they're they're feisty and and fun to talk to. And I was able to interview in person uh, Barbara Millar, who's just a gym. I mean, the funniest part about it is I'm in her house for two days. I'm interviewing her. And at the end of the two days, she says, why would anyone want to hear about our story? Mm. Which I thought was just great because, you know, to her, she just lived it. It wasn't that it's just part of her life. But I keep telling right. her this is an amazing story. It needs to be told. Right. So you had the opportunity to speak to them or her directly. Yes. Yeah. And do the interviews and I had a, a friend who's Korean, and I told her, would you just hunt around and see if you can find anything out about this Korean man? Here's his name. And I figured she wouldn't have any luck. I mean, what were the chances? She came back within less than a day and had found the family, had found his widow, had, you know, had found people who had contacts with them, and I was able to really start getting a lot of information. So it was actually, it was actually really cool to be able to pull that off. What do you think we can take away from so, so someone picks up the book today? Uh, what can we take away? What are your hopes that we take away from the book? Well, this is going to be an unsatisfying answer, uh, which is to say I often will write a story like this. I don't have an agenda. I mean, I want I want readers to take from it what they will after they read the story. More than anything, I want it to just be a compelling and, and powerful story. But, I, you know, I do think the title is somewhat telling this notion of praying with the enemy that um, – for me, at least, what I get from their story, and I think other people could get uh, different things, but what I get from their story is this idea of two men willing to overlook all sorts of differences. They're in different armies that are at war with each other. They're of different races and nationalities. Quite frankly, they were of different religions and, and uh, willing to look past all of that to join forces together to try to escape a common enemy. Um I think uh, our society today could really benefit from that type of attitude, right? We, we've, we've got very important and critical differences that we don't have to sacrifice, but at the same time, we can, we can join together to preserve those things that matter most. Right. And the title, again, is Praying with the Enemy. And so I, I think that's a big title because if we are to pray with our enemy today, that – and there's – we have so much to disagree about. <laughs> I think there's, you know, the, the, the options are many uh, when it comes to disagreeing. What, what do you believe, what may, where did the title come from uh, in terms of praying with my enemy? You know what? It's just something that came to me. It was the very first, normally I pitch a title to my editor and publishers and they come back with 17 different alternatives. And then we go back and forth for weeks on end until we settle on something this time, I, it was the first thing that came to mind for me. It made sense. I pitched it to my, my publisher. He loved it, uh, my editor. And then he took it back to his, you know, the publishing committee and everyone else at the publisher. They all loved it. And we just stuck with it from the beginning. It, it, it just made sense. And you've got these two men who, uh, you know, technically are supposed to be enemies, but realize very quickly that they can, they can be allies together and, and do have this, in the case of the American, kind of a, a, a budding faith. And in the case of the Korean, uh, a struggling faith. He, he was someone who was very devout, but then was really beginning to doubt himself and his faith. And so, you, you know, them praying together to try to escape is what makes for uh, a really compelling story. So that's how I got to the title. When did you start writing the book? 
I first started writing it. Well, it depends on what you mean by writing, I suppose. But, you know, the, the really, really thinking of the narrative and how I craft it was probably about two years ago. And okay. it was about it was about 18 months worth of uh serious research and outlining and figuring out how the scenes were going to break down, who are going to be my point of view characters. How are I going to make the stories merge together? Obviously I have the history of the two men, but then there's also a question of pacing and timing and how you want to pull all that off. So I have to think uh, two years ago was in the midst of pandemic, probably starting or we were in the midst of it. Uh, We were also in the midst of, that's when this podcast started. It was in the midst of racial tension. Um, a lot of stuff going on in the country in terms of, you know, um, there was just a lot going on. Was that, did that play into the title? And, and as you were writing, did you find, you know, did you find something in there as you were writing because there was so much going on in our country in terms of our enemy and we were at war with one another in really many, many ways. Did you find that? You know, it's interesting, not so much with this book, although I absolutely think that theme is there as as we've already discussed it. But uh, two years ago, I was actually finishing up my previous book, which is called The Immortals. And it is a nonfiction, purely nonfiction. It's the true story of five men who sacrificed themselves to save hundreds of others when a Nazi U-boat shunk, sunk their transport in the middle of World War II. Um, these five men oh. were uh, each of different religions and one of different race. And as I was writing that book and wrapping it up right before I turned to Praying with the Enemy, the the book, The Immortals, was originally going to be called The Immortal Chaplains because the story that most people know about is about these four chaplains, each of different religions, who sacrificed themselves to save men of all these other religions. Well, as I was doing the research for that book, uh, you mentioned you know the racial tensions we were going through in 2020, and, and quite frankly, they're still, I think, dealing with today as a society. Uh, As I was doing the research for that book, I came across a black petty officer who, after the four chaplains had saved all these men when their boat was sinking, they were in the water, freezing water off the coast of Greenland, and Coast Guard cutters came to save them, and this black petty officer uh, named Charles W. David Jr. had absolutely no obligation whatsoever to jump in and save people because he was only the... He was the fifth highest ranking man on the ship, and it was overt racism that prevented him from rising any higher in the ranks. But a bunch of men before him basically, you know, figuratively froze. They, they, they were afraid to jump into the water. So he and some other men jumped into the water. And of the, of the 200 men that the chaplain saved, Charles W. David Jr. saved 100 of those by pulling them out of the water. And then he wow. died a couple of weeks later from pneumonia. So... It's an indirect answer to your question, but that book especially, I really had in mind. As soon as I found out about Charles W. David Jr., I'd only found there had been one paragraph written about him, and I immediately called up my editor and I said, "Look, I know I'm under deadline, but I don't see how we can tell this story, call it the Immortal Chaplains, and not give Charles W. David Jr. the same treatment." So I said, "We've got to change the title of the book to The Immortals." You need to give me more time to hunt down uh, Charles's family to do research on his background and his life story and to give him the same treatment we're giving the chaplains. And so uh, that was a wonderful opportunity. And it was so great to connect with his family and tell his story. And so all of that was very much um, at top of mind. And I think you can see the same theme in both books. It's the idea of people who have, you know, important differences, but trying to set those differences aside uh, to kind of. Uh, show each other and respect each other's common humanity. 
Where do we find the book? You can get it anywhere books are sold. Amazon's obviously the easiest, but Walmart, Target, Barnes and Noble, um, anywhere, anywhere you're, you can go to my website, stephentcollis.com. I've got links to all, uh, you know, I have at least half a dozen retailers selling it. Awesome. And what is your biggest hope that someone would take away from the book? My, uh, this is probably completely selfish. My biggest hope is that they'll absolutely love it and uh, want to share it with their friends. I think it's an inspiring story. It's an inspiring story of faith, but it's an inspiring story of, I would say, sophisticated faith. People who are who take their faith seriously. Ward Millar and Kim J. Pill, the Korean, are two people that, that really take their faith seriously, and we're trying to figure out what their faith meant to them. And and I'd love I'd love for it to be an inspiring uh, story for folks that they want to share with their friends. So let me ask you one more question. Um, when you writing a book is not easy. Um, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a labor of love. I think in many ways, uh, you said you have, you have other jobs that you do. You have another life, so to speak. You have a father, you know, you have children. Um, what goes into writing a book? And this is completely, I guess, unrelated or related, but I just want people to know, like, it's not easy. It's, I think we, we go to the library or behind me on the bookshelf back there, are a bunch of books. I grab a book, I read it. I don't know if I realize what goes into writing a book. It's, it's a lot. It's a process. Is it not? I mean, how long did this take you from, from first conception to book in your hand? How long did that take you? Well, you know, you know, in all reality, 20 years, right? Uh, and I don't just mean that because I found the idea 20 years ago and then barely got around to writing it. But it, it's not just to be a successful writer. It's not just the one project. It's it's building. It's learning the craft mm-hmm. and learning how to write well and then breaking in with a publisher and convincing a publisher to take a gamble on you. Right. And then, and then from there actually drafting. So there's all of that, which took me a very long time, especially as I was navigating another career and, and raising a family and whatnot. Once you start working on a particular project, if you've got a publisher, uh, you know, you start with the kernel of an idea, then you've got to think about how am I going to make this idea something that's really compelling for a reader? Mm -hmm. Uh, For me personally, I outline the scenes so that I can really figure out a way that this story is going to work um, in a way that'll move quickly for the reader and help them experience it. And that's not, those scenes aren't just accidental. I mean, there's a method involved where you've, I use what's called a three act structure. You've got act one setting things up act two or where people are trying and failing at whatever goal they're trying to achieve. And then the third act is where everything comes together and you have emotional resonance. So, setting up your scene so that works. You've got subplots that have to follow a similar pattern. Um, and then, of course, there's crafting and drafting it all, right, and making sure the scenes are doing what you intended for them to do. That's a lot of work, and it's not easy with, with the writing, especially when you find yourself being repetitive or using the same writing technique too much. You've got to adjust for that. And that's just that's probably the most burdensome heavy lift is just isolating yourself and writing and writing and writing and closing out all of the distractions, even while emails are piling up and other obligations are pushing in on you. But you you have to have a good amount of time to just get the words on the page, right? right. And for books like mine with that are historical fiction or nonfiction, there's a lot of research involved, right? I've had to I travel all over the, the country, um, sometimes to other countries, trying to get facts, understand things. 
I'd understand things that are not necessarily intuitive to me, like nautical terms and, you know, terms related to flying jets in the 50s in the Korean War. That's not stuff I just naturally know about. You've got to do the research. So all of that goes into it. It's a lot of work, but you're right. It's a labor of love. I find true writers have stories within them and they just have to tell them. Yeah, they're going to come out one way or another. So I'm I'm grateful yeah. that I can do it in a way that I can share the stories with others. And give me all the links one more time. Sure. Well, the easiest link is my website, uh, stephentcollis.com. And from there, you can find all the retailers as well as my other books and some of my background and bio. Well, thank you. I, I know that I know that writing is you said it. We've said it a few times. It is a labor of love. It, it, you took time away from your family to write this because you're passionate about it. So I hope this audience will uh, seek out the book, find the book, and um, and support the book. And I, I, I believe, which is why I want to do the interview, um, I believe it will change us and help us um, in the time that we're in, um, you know, to, again, pray for our enemy, play, pray, praying with our enemy, Um you know, I think the world would be different if we could, we could just pause and do that. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing this information with us and for writing the book. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's really been a pleasure. I'm grateful I can talk about it and uh, tell your readers if they want to shoot me an email. I'm happy to, I'm happy to hear from people who got it. If they've got questions. Where can they, what's, what is your email? So it's it's pretty simple. If they're on my website, again, stephentcollis.com. Uh, that's uh, Stephen with a V, and then Collis is C-O-L-L-I-S. Uh, they can just hit the contact button, and it's it's contact at stephentcollis.com, and it'll, it'll come to me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for writing the book. I look forward to reading it myself. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I, I look forward to reading it. And uh, thank you so much for... Uh, the passion that you have for this story, and I'm sure that those two families very much appreciate your passion for this story. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Unscripted Podcast. Make sure to like, share, follow, and review on your favorite podcast platforms. Also, make sure to check out my song, Great and Mighty One, on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you find your music. We'll see you next time on Unscripted with Aaron Conrad. We've all spent more time with family lately. It can feel like old times, but your mind is on the future too and what you can do to shape it. At Sandy Spring Bank, we work with clients to help them grow and protect their money with wealth management, trust services, and insurance so they can enjoy today and ultimately pass along their wealth. We believe real banking is a conversation. Let's talk about your dreams. Visit sandyspringbank.com slash wealth. Wealth and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed, and may lose value. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. 